to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. This past week has seen a different face on the riots that have been sweeping so many of our major cities. This week, in Compton, California, which is in Los Angeles County, two sheriff's deputies were ambushed as they sat in their car. They were both shot in the face and left to die. And in the meantime, a crowd of onlookers cheered and reveled in their tragedy. No one tried to help them. No one called 911. They had to do that themselves. In fact, it was one of the wounded deputies herself, a 31-year-old mother of a six-year-old. She called for help, even though she herself was shot in the jaw and she could barely speak. And then she attended to her partner until help arrived. You've all heard the story. Even the mainstream media carried it. This was a picture of pure courage, raw courage, facing what may have seemed to her the possibility of death. And yet she did what she had to do. She called for help in the best way she was able to, and then she took care of her partner. This is amazing, and all this in the face of a jeering crowd who offered no help at all, and cheered the fact that they had been so badly wounded and maybe would die. This is just sick. You've all heard the story. Even the mainstream media carried it. And then... Later, at the St. Francis Hospital in Linwood, which is the next town, where the two deputies were taken for emergency surgery to save their lives, a crowd gathered outside the hospital, outside the emergency entrance, and actually tried to push their way into the hospital. And when they couldn't get in, they blocked the driveway where ambulances bring their patients who are in medical crisis. They not only blocked the ambulance, They not only blocked the ambulances, but they screamed, we hope they die. This is beyond despicable. It's disgusting. I don't even have, there aren't words to express how vile this is and evil. What have we become that this even happens in America? And where is it leading us as we approach another presidential election and the decision of a lifetime? And why would any politician, no matter what party he or she belongs to, why would anyone support this? The rioters claim they're demonstrating for racial justice, racial justice, and against police brutality. But this isn't about race anymore. It's not even about politics. It's about it's about people feeling entitled to things they haven't earned. It's about power. It's about people using what they consider to be their victimhood to demand things that go far beyond anything that is reasonable or even possible. They want to eliminate the police from our cities. Defund the police, they say. That is not only absurd, it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. And it would put every American at risk at the hands of every criminal and psychopath. 
No civilized society can survive without some form of law and order. The latest thing that the Democrats have been calling for is something they call reimagining the police. What in the world does that mean? The Democrats have been talking about reimagining a world without without reimagining a world without police where communities provide their own law and order. But just look what law and order looks like in cities where the police have been withdrawn, even partially withdrawn. Portland, New York City, Denver, where the police were told to stand down. Chaos reigns, and there chaos reigns, and there is no law, and there is no order. People are afraid to leave their homes, running, ga- running gun battles, rage on the streets, and no one is safe. If there is an emergency, there will be no, without the police, if there is an emergency, there will be no one to call because there will be no one to come. There will be no one to come. Yes, of course, the police need to be respectful of the citizens they are there to protect and keep safe. Yes, of course. And of course, there need to be strict rules of behavior that must be followed in the course of their performing their duties as officers of the law. They have to show restraint. They have to use force, but with restraint. They have to use the only the amount of force that is absolutely necessary for them to carry out their job. A police force that is a law unto itself is clearly not what I'm talking about. That is a menace to society. But the police should not be fair game for every malcontent with an illegal gun either. And in this new war between the rioters and the police, this is what is happening. They should not be the targets, but they are. This mayhem, this mayhem must be stopped and soon. It has already spread too far. It has already gotten out of control. So where are the mayors and the governors whose job it is to maintain local law and order? Well, in Washington State, in Oregon, in California, in New York, the mayors and governors stand on the side of the rioters. In New York City and Seattle, they have given in to the demands to defund the police. In New York City, they have a new law. I spoke about it last week. They call it a no-cash-bail law that allows violent criminals to be arrested, booked, and then immediately released back on the streets to go right back to doing whatever they were doing before that they were arrested for in the first place. That's what's happening in New York City. And only a few weeks ago, the mayor of Compton, Asia Brown, accused the sheriff's deputies in Compton of, quote, terrorizing the community, unquote. My question is, how many of these riots in cities around the country are either caused or inflamed by the liberal, or should I say socialist or even Marxist, mayors, city council members, and governors who support and encourage, and most of all, do nothing to stop these acts of violence by rioters, many of whom are paid to inflame and destroy. We saw it in Portland, in Seattle, in Los Angeles, in New York City. Where does it end? And how do we stop it? 
I really do believe that we are reaching a point where it is more than high time for the president to step in and federalize the National Guard and send them into the cities in their, in their states to bring law and order back to the streets. Too many good people are getting hurt and killed. Did you know that by Labor Day, more than a thousand people had been shot in New York City since the beginning of the year and in Chicago, there were over 1,900 shootings by mid-July. And it's not just adults who end up being targeted and sometimes killed. It's not just in the big cities either. And it's usually not, and people are usually not shot by other people with legal guns. Just this past week, an 11-year-old boy was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting in Troy, New York. And it had nothing to do with him. Buying a gun on the street for cash is commonplace if you know where to look. So this is not about gun control either. A city without police is an invitation to lawlessness that puts every single citizen at risk, personal, physical risk, every time he or she goes outside. There's an election coming up. So if you live in a city where this is happening on your streets, you need to get out the vote for a turnover in your mayors, your city councils, and your governor if they are up for election. This is no longer anything to take lightly. This is something to take very seriously, not only take seriously, but do something about it. And as I said before, I'm waiting for Trump to take action, to step in and stop it once and for all. And this brings me to another dark subject. It's actually bright. It's so bright, it's lighting up the skies. And I'm talking about the fires that are blazing away in California, Oregon, and Washington State. These fires are enormous. They are record-setting. And they are destroying so much forest land and so many houses and so many people's lives. And it's even taking lives. The governor, Governor Newsom, is in a feud with President Trump because he is blaming the fires, that is to say the governor is blaming the fires, on global warming. He is taking no responsibility for them at all. He's not taking responsibility for the fact that California has not been keeping up with the infrastructure that provides electricity to his people in California. He is not keeping up with forest maintenance. It's just basic knowledge for anyone who understands the natural process. Fire is God's way of cleaning up his forests and fields. In the old days, forest fires were a regular occurrence because nobody managed the forests. But today we should know better. And with proper management, we have a way of keeping these fires under control and not allowing them to get so wild that we can't contain them. But in California, forest management has been left on purpose to Mother Nature, who is doing a pretty bad job of it. Take the Creek Fire, for example. 
which is blazing in the Sierra National Forest right now and has already burned more than 220,000 acres. And it is only 16% under control. This fire has been burning since September 4th, and it's being fueled by nearly 150 million dead trees that were killed by the bark beetle. And those dead trees, according to the Forest Service, those dead trees contain nearly 2,000 tons of dead fuel per acre. These numbers are really hard to wrap your head around. But here's another figure. 129 million trees have died in California's national forests in just the last 10 years. So you can get an idea of how long this mismanagement has been going on. Now, Governor Newsom is blaming the fires on climate change. California has also had an unprecedented drought. And then, of course, there's the bark beetle. And one other thing, the high tree densities. When a forest is not managed well, the grown trees drop their seeds, which sprout and become new trees. After a while, the trees are growing so close to each other that there is insufficient food or water, and they start to die. They also then become infested with disease and insects that hasten their demise. And when the forests are not managed at all and are just left to do their things, there is another factor. Falling leaves litter the ground and brush also finds a place to grow in the rotting leaves. All this provides a massive fuel supply for fire, which can be caused by a lightning strike or human carelessness, or as happened last year in the huge blaze they called the campfire, a 100-year-old electric transmission line in the power grid started that fire. At its height, the campfire burned at the rate of 80 football fields a minute. Nearly 19,000 buildings, including more than 11,000 homes, burned to the ground, and 85 people died in that fire. This year, the fires are raging and more than 2.2 million acres have been consumed by the flames. Over 20 people are known to have died. I don't expect Governor Newsom to take responsibility for any of this. It's much easier to blame it on President Trump. But at some point, California is going to have to face the mismanagement that has gone on for years. California's government has neglected its infrastructure for more than 50 years. The state's water system, for example, was designed for a population of 25 million people. That was back in the 1960s. But today, the population is 40 million, and the system has never been upgraded. And then there's California's roads, which are considered to be some of the worst in the country. California also has 678 dams, and they are considered to have a high hazard potential. And this is all because the infrastructure of the state has been neglected for a very long time. The state is now facing a debt that is so massive that no one seems to know exactly how much it really is. But what is clear 
is that California spends more than it has in the bank, and although California has the highest income tax rate in the country, its debt is still staggering. California's neglect of infrastructure has created a situation that means a major crisis whenever the unexpected happens. These fires will eventually be quenched, but what has been lost is beyond tragic, and at some point, California needs to understand its responsibility to its natural resources and to its infrastructure. And these include understanding that its forests are an integral part of what makes California so attractive to so many people, and that these forests must be protected and properly managed so that they will not be repeatedly destroyed by fire which also becomes a tremendous threat to California's population. Now, after the break, I want to talk to you about something that may have changed the course of history. Don't go away. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot sleep. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It was rather shocking to hear on the news that Iran has been planning to assassinate our ambassador in South Africa, Lana Marks. American officials have known about the threats since the spring, but intelligence suggests now that the threats have become much more specific in recent weeks. The assassination threat apparently has been considered by Iran as retaliation for the U.S. drone strike that targeted Qassam Soleimani on January 3, 2020 on a Baghdad International Airport access road. Soleimani was the commander of the elite Al-Quds force, the 
of the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And he was considered to be the second most powerful person in Iran after the Ayatollah Khamenei. He was also, he was also responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American soldiers in Iraq. He was personally sanctioned by the United Nations and the European Union, and he was designated a terrorist by the United States in 2005. That Iran should target one of our ambassadors for assassination is deplorable, but it is typical of what our enemies do when they cannot accept responsibility for their own actions. Soleimani was killed because, as someone at the Pentagon once said of him, he was responsible for the death of hundreds of Americans and coalition service members and the wounding of thousands more, unquote. During his 20-plus years as head of uh, the Al-Quds force, he was responsible for introducing shaped charges into the Iraq war. Unlike conventional bombs, these could cut through the steel of armored vehicles. And this man, Soleimani, was responsible for orchestrating attacks against coalition forces, against American and coalition forces in Iraq. Although Iran has denied this, my own sources have confirmed it. There is no easy answer as to why Marx was singled out as the possible target for Iran's assassination plot. South Africa isn't one of the most high-profile embassies in the American Foreign Service, but Marx grew up there in South Africa and is also a longtime friend of Donald Trump and a member of his Mar-a-Lago resort. She was unanimously confirmed by the Senate in September 2019, and she assumed her post in South Africa in January 2020. She says that she originally joined Mar-a-Lago because, at the time, it was the only club in Palm Beach that would accept Jewish members. And that may also explain why she has been targeted, that she is a friend of the president, that she is Jewish, and that she is accessible. Now that the threat has been made public, two other things have to happen. Ambassador Marks must be protected, and President Trump must do whatever he can to ensure that Iran does not act on its threat. He has already made his intentions very clear. In one of his famous tweets, he wrote this, quote, According to press reports, Iran may be planning an assassination or other attack against the United States in retaliation for the killing of terrorist leader Soleimani. Any attack by Iran in any form against the United States will be met with an attack on Iran that will be 1,000 times greater in magnitude. Unquote. I think he's made himself pretty clear. Here's another story about Iran. One of their champion wrestlers, Navid Avkari, who was beloved by the Iranian people, was reported by the government to have been executed this week. It seems that during the 2018 uprising, Afkari participated in the protest against the regime. So did thousands of other people. He was also accused of the murder of an undercover security guard from the IRGC, 
the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. He maintained his innocence throughout until suddenly he was seen on video admitting to both crimes. He later explained that he had been tortured and in order to save his family, he confessed his guilt. During the hearings, he said, quote, I told the inspector that neither do I know the secret agent that has been killed, nor have I heard his name. But under torture and to save my family and for Vahid, who was one of his brothers, who was also imprisoned, I gave them what they wanted, unquote. The court, such as it was, because it was held in complete secrecy, so nobody knows what really happened there, the court found him guilty and sentenced him to two death sentences, 74 lashes, and six months in prison, while his two brothers, Vahid and Habib, were sentenced to 54 years and 27 years in prison on similar charges. Then, in the early morning of September 12th, Afkari was executed at the Adelabad prison, as reported by the Iranian government. And I say it that way because, well, it was curious. You would think that because Afkari was such a high-profile figure, he would surely have been executed in public, where he could be made an example of. But he wasn't. And he was buried in the dark of night with very, very tight security surrounding the burial and only his immediate family present. And there was something else. Afkari was reported to be executed during the month of Muharram. And according to Islamic practice, executions never take place during this month. Muharram is the first month of the Islamic New Year and is considered a holy month, second only to Ramadan in its significance. So it would be what they called haram, which means forbidden, to execute him during this month, because according to Sharia, it is forbidden to kill during the month of Muharram. This law is also written into the Constitution of Islamic Republic, so you would expect it to be followed to the letter. But according to the, but according to the Iranian government, it wasn't. They reported that he was executed, and they made no further explanation. So all this makes the murder of Afkari very strange indeed. In a telephone call from prison before his presumed execution, Afkari said this, quote, People, it is only logical that I will fight for my life, and as per the evidence, all clues are an affirmation to my innocence. All this evidence that we have collected and everything that I am saying right now is only here to let you know that if I ever get executed in the 21st century and with all the human rights organizations, the UN or Security Council or whatever else, an innocent human being which had tried to the best of his might and fought to have his voice heard was hanged. Unquote. Avkari was a man of great courage. Once it was announced that he was to be executed, he recanted his confession and stood for the truth, regardless of the consequences. And the consequences in Iran can be brutal. 
Pleas came in from all over the world, including from Donald Trump, asking the Iranian government to cancel his execution. This is a story to which we may never know the proper ending. All around, it's a terrible story, but it tells us a great deal about Iran. It may be an indication as well that the Iranian mullahs are getting very, very nervous. And they used this example of Navid Afkari to show to the world that they, the leaders of Iran, are still in control. Now, there's a big storm brewing in the Gulf of Mexico. It's called Sally, and it's a killer. And it's been around for a while. And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. It's dangerous. It's a very dangerous storm, not because it's so fierce. It's been hovering between a Category 1 and a Category 2. That's not so bad, but it is a very slow-moving storm, and it has dumped the equivalent of two feet of water into the Gulf of Mexico. That's before it ever hit land. So as it plods along at about two miles an hour, it shifted its path, and instead of heading towards New Orleans, which was what everybody expected, it's now headed toward Alabama and Mississippi. What makes this so dangerous is its lack of speed that enables it to dump huge amounts of water over wherever it goes, slowly, slowly. The rain keeps coming, and the rain in this storm is relentless. The irony, of course, is that as Sally dumps huge amounts of water on the southern states, the west coast is burning up, and there's no rain in sight. The weather in America is changing, and it's weird. In the Midwest, earlier this summer, they experienced something I had never heard of before. It was called a derecho, and it was wicked. A derecho, it seems, is what they call an inland hurricane. It drops torrents of water, large hailstones, and it packs straight-line winds at hurricane or tornado speeds. As it moved across the Midwest on August 10th, it covered 770 miles in 14 hours. In Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds estimated that one-third of Iowa's corn crop was either damaged or destroyed, and silos full of grain, some tens of millions of bushels of grain, were damaged or destroyed as bins blew away or were crushed, and huge trees were knocked down like matchsticks. 400,000 homes and businesses lost power, and in many cases it wasn't restored for more than a week. And now, more than four weeks later, people in the path of the derecho are still cleaning up the mess. This was a rare storm that left its mark on the heartland. It's one to tell your grandchildren about. Long after the mess is all cleaned up and the lights are back on, and this is just a memory. This has been some year for crazy weather, and it's not over yet. Well, the China virus continues to confuse and confound. More symptoms are appearing. <laughs> Here is the latest. That while recovering from the virus, a patient may experience jaw pain, something known as TMJ. And it's painful. It really does hurt. It, I'm not laughing because it hurts. I'm laughing because it's just one more thing 
in this long, growing longer list of things about the virus that we didn't know before. The TMJ may be because of difficulty breathing during the more serious phases of the virus. Who knew? And here's another thing. The mayors of our cities are still fighting over whether to reopen or keep their city shut tight. We'll talk more about this after the break, but because it's connected to the virus, I'll just mention it here. As the cities continue to die, the virus is playing its role as well. Because as long as the cities are closed, restaurants and stores are closing, some forever. Parents don't know whether to go to work or stay home with their children who can't go to school. The mayors of our cities are going mad, completely mad, demanding obedience from the public who must wear masks whenever they go out, who can't go to church or to concerts or games. But it's okay for the rioters to run around without masks while they loot and burn and attack the police. The virus, it seems, will not attack you when you riot, only when you pray or watch a football game outside. Here's a thought. Do the rioters ever get the virus? None of the liberal mayors seem to mind that they're rioting without masks. (laughs) I mind that they're rioting at all. Maybe the mayors know something we don't. Did you notice that the rioters are almost always outdoors? except when they're in stores looting and burning. So maybe we can take a hint from that and have all of our social experiences outside. Only if you live in New York, that won't work. Did you hear that Bill de Blasio just decided to cancel the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade along Fifth Avenue? That parade is about as outdoors as you can get, but... Anything that will give New Yorkers a breather and a little fun won't do. Maybe he thinks it will be too much fun. And if you're having fun, you might catch the virus. No, it doesn't make any sense. You can guess I'm not a fan of Bill de Blasio. So here's the thing I really don't understand, and I guess I have plenty of company. Some people don't lock down. They don't self-quarantine. They go to church, they go out to eat, they even go to places where there are lots of people, and they don't wear masks. Now, if you live in a state where the rules are not so strict, most likely a Republican state, then you can do that. The restaurants are open, the bars are open, the stores are open, the salons are open, and these people go and do these things. They get their hair done, they get their hair cut, they go out with their friends to restaurants, and they have a good time, and they don't wear masks. And here's the thing, they also don't get sick. They haven't gotten sick. Not my friends, not the ones who do that. And some people, on the other hand, who play by the rules, who wear masks and gloves when they go out, who avoid crowds, who stand six feet away from anybody else, who don't touch things, who wash their hands constantly, and so forth. They get sick anyway. So what's this all about? 
I've been saying right along that we really don't know anything about this virus. It was built in a lab. It was intended to be a weapon of war. And it's doing its job, more or less. It's keeping people at home. It's making them scared. The entire way of life that we have lived for so many years. And many of us are not living it now. Not the way we should. Not the way we intended to live our lives. So it's just food for thought. Eventually, the pandemic will pass. Eventually, we will have a vaccine. We will have medicine for it. And we will be able to treat it better than we're doing now. We just need to have faith that, as my mother used to say, this too shall pass. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about the groundbreaking event that began the process of bringing peace to the Middle East. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, I promised you that I would talk about what happened at the White House on Tuesday and what it means. But before I do, let's do a little politics. Because what is going on in this country is starting to get as entertaining as it is scary. Here's the first story. Now, over the last few weeks, I've been talking about how the Democrat agenda may be a lot different from what they're saying it is. I suggested last week that the real plan, given Joe Biden's apparent cognitive decline, is that if he wins, then after the election, he will either step aside or be retired by the party, and Kamala Harris will assume the presidency either formally or informally. The question is, who's the boss? So guess what happened this week? Kamala Harris actually answered it. She was talking about her plans for small business owners, and she said this, quote, A Harris administration, together with Joe Biden as president, unquote, a Harris administration, really? It's a Biden administration with Harris as vice president. But that's not what she said. Did she just give away the secret plan? Who's in charge here anyway? Joe Biden picked up on it later, and he talked about the Harris-Biden ticket. Well, maybe he's got a sense of humor after all. Something really strange is going on here, and it does not look good for America. Nancy Pelosi is having a hard time. You all know the story about Nancy Pelosi going to the hair salon when it was supposed to be closed 
and using as an excuse that she was told by the stylist that the hair salon can serve one customer at a time. That was just baloney. And she should have known that. But Pelosi has authority and privilege, and she can really do what she wants, except this time she got caught. Now, there were some demonstrators who came to visit her and hung hair curlers and a hairdryer from a tree in front of her house. I don't suppose she thought it was very funny. She's not going to get away with all this quite so easily. She is not going to take all this well because Nancy Pelosi really does think that she is privileged, that she has authority, and that gives her the right to do things that other people can't do. And she, you know, when when the virus first came out and people were told to stay home, she took a group of people down to Chinatown in San Francisco. And she told everybody, come on down, it's perfectly safe, everything's okay. Now she's saying that President Trump didn't warn us and didn't tell us, and we did, he didn't know, he didn't act quickly. But she was the one who was acting in defiance of everything that he was saying. She's a hypocrite, for one thing. And for another thing, she is somebody who feels entitled to things that other people are not entitled to. And I don't understand that at all. You know, Nancy Pelosi has always been considered one of the best political strategists in Congress. And she's been an, an example for others. But I think she's getting old and maybe a little senile because she doesn't seem to get it. She thinks it's perfectly okay for her to say one thing and do another, for criticizing the president for doing something that she herself does and he doesn't do. This is the art of transference, of projection. When you project your sins, your crimes, your bad behavior on your opponent who doesn't do these things, but you make it sound like he does it and you don't. Well, that's just crazy. But the Democrats have been doing it for years. Now, when Nancy Pelosi went to that salon and got caught, she did something else, and that was despicable. She blamed her mistake on the salon owner who wasn't even there. And she gave her so much negative publicity that she drove this single mom who had been working for 10 years to build her business and was now losing everything because of the virus. She made this mom's life so miserable that she threw in the towel and is selling her business and moving away. It's pathetic. It is worse than pathetic. It's disgusting. And this is Nancy Pelosi. This is who she is. Isn't it time that she got retired? Nancy Pelosi is obstructive. She's arrogant. Do you remember the time that the government was going to shut down it was just about the time for the Christmas recess. And President Trump called for a meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And they were going to meet in the White House. And he waited all throughout the Christmas vacation. 
I don't know where Chuck Schumer was, but I do know where Nancy Pelosi was when he was sitting in the White House waiting for her. She was in Hawaii at a spa hotel living the good life and not giving a damn about the American people and that the country was about to shut down. That's Nancy Pelosi, and it's really time she was gone. Okay, let's talk about the big story for today. It's only a big story if you watch Fox News or One America News or Newsmax. It's not big news if you watch most of the liberal media. It just isn't. They talk about other things. I must say that CNN covered this very well from beginning to end, and they had good commentary. So I don't usually watch CNN, but I did on this occasion, and it was well worth it. I want to talk to you about something that the president did that was really monumental. You know, presidents going all the way back to George H.W. Bush, presidents have been trying to make peace in the Middle East. And there were many attempts. President George H.W. Bush and his son, George W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, they all tried. And they all failed. Jimmy Carter got Israel's Prime Minister Menachem Begin and the PLO's chief Yasser Arafat to sit down together at Camp David, but that didn't work out too well. And then Bill Clinton also was able to get Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn, and they even shook hands. And more than that, they even got a Nobel Peace Prize, only there wasn't any peace, because Yasser Arafat was a terrorist. We all knew that. And President George W. Bush tried, and he failed. Obama didn't try. I think, I think his heart was with the Arabs, and so he didn't really care about making peace. What he did do was support the Arab Spring, which tore the Middle East apart, and he did support Iran on a crazy deal that actually allowed them ultimately to develop nuclear weapons, and he gave them $1.5 billion in cash. Do you remember that? And he bought our hostages back from Iran. And do you remember that Iran would not release the hostages until after the cash had been offloaded from the plane? That was a crazy situation. That never made sense to me. And now we have Donald Trump. And he has done it. Well, at first he tried to make a peace deal between the Palestinians and Israel. But the head of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, never even read the agreement, never read the paper. He simply said, no. And that was the end of that. So that gave Donald Trump the opportunity to go looking for peace in another way. And this is where he succeeded where everyone else had failed. He looked at the picture differently. He looked at it creatively. He looked for new partners and he found them. And he put together a deal between Israel, 
and the United Arab Emirates that stuck. And it was a good deal because it was a comprehensive treaty between the two countries. And it encompassed diplomacy and trade and technology and tourism, the whole ball of wax, and it was all there. And this was the first step to a real, honest, Middle East peace agreement between the countries of the region, not just between Israel and a group of people who were not a country. And what Donald Trump promised was that it wouldn't just be one country. It wouldn't just be the United Arab Emirates. It would be more than one country. Once this deal was signed, more countries would come on board. And this was something that no one had ever tried to do before. And what do you know? No sooner had the two countries agreed on finalizing this deal than Bahrain came on board. And then there was talk of Sudan and Serbia and Kosovo and more Arab countries were coming on board. And this is what is going to become the foundation in a comprehensive and lasting peace in the Middle East. And it was never done before. It was never tried before. It took Donald Trump to put this together. And this, my friends, is huge. It's monumental. It lays the groundwork for a future peace that was never possible before. It is the first time since Israel was founded as a nation in 1948 that she has been able to make peace with her neighbors, to do something so important that will bind this region in a new and very, very important partnership. It's what the partners call the circle of peace. It's historic, and it has the capability of reshaping the future history of this entire region. So on Tuesday, September 15th, 2020, President Trump invited three leaders from the Middle East to the White House. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Emirati Foreign Minister Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nakhyan, and Bahraini Foreign Minister Abdulatif al-Zayani. All four men signed the documents that sealed this deal between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and the United States. And this was all organized, planned, and finalized by President Donald Trump. It was an amazing, amazing day. As the president said, as he congratulated the three countries, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, saying that the moment marks the dawn of a new Middle East. That's a lot to say. The documents they signed were called the Abraham Accords. That was an interesting name because all three religions that were represented on that White House balcony on Tuesday represented the three great faiths of the Western world, Judaism, Christianity, 
and Islam. These are the three Abrahamic faiths, and all were represented on that balcony. So now we move on from the ceremony and the celebration to the actual hard work of making these agreements work. And we're talking about comprehensive agreements, and there are so many areas which have to work together and separately. And we're talking about diplomacy, trade, tourism, technology, education, all different things that are going to be coming online simultaneously and are going to cement the relationships that have just been formed. And by the way, there are, according to President Trump, other countries that want to come on board with this as well. And that is what's going to make this work. As new countries come on board, they will add depth and complexity to these new budding relationships. There is an air of excitement in Israel in spite of all of the stress from the coronavirus and the threats from Hamas. You know, during the ceremony on Tuesday, Hamas fired a rocket into Israel to make a point, I'm sure. They wanted to say, we are not in favor of this. We do not agree. But you know what? That's too bad because this is something that is going to change the region and if it works, and I don't see any reason why it shouldn't, because there seems to be a great deal of goodwill that is tying all this together. The agreement is strong, and I believe it is going to last. So what about the Palestinians? They don't want to be part of this. They don't want this to happen because their goals in the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and even Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, they want all of Israel to be Islamic. And Israel is a Jewish state. And that means that the ultimate goal of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and Hezbollah is, the way they say it, is to drive the Jews into the sea. Well, that's not going to happen. The stronger the relationship is between Israel and her Arab neighbors, not the terrorist organizations, but the real neighbors, the countries. This is what's going to make a lasting peace. And at some point in time, the Palestinians are going to have to climb on board or they will be destroyed. Because the power of these countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and the others that are going to come on board, the pressure will be too great on the Palestinians not to come on board. And then the real negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians will begin in earnest. And the Palestinians will, because they have to, begin to negotiate. So we'll see. That's a step in the future. Right now, we can celebrate this new agreement, this new alliance between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, and of course, the United States, which is allied to all three. Well, my friends, we are at the end of another hour. I want to thank you for spending it with me. I hope you have a good week, a safe week, and I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman. 
And this has been the Friedman Report.